you're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. What's my purpose in life? What's your purpose in life? It's a question we've all asked. It's a question we continually ask. It's a question perhaps later in life when a spouse passes, one that we've been married to for decades. We wonder, why has God kept us here? It's a question we ask as a young person that we're starting out post-high school oftentimes, whether we're pursuing a career immediately or we're jumping into college of some sort. But something inside of us craves to know our purpose in life. All of us ask again, why am I here? And studies show that when we know the why to life, when we know our why, we have great motivation. When we know our why, we have this great motivation in times of employment, motivation in life. When we know why, researchers tell us, it activates the brain's reward system. And researchers have shown that when we know our why, the people increase their effort. Look at this, a medical research took two groups, two different groups, one group different than the other. Both groups were looking at medical images, looking at medical images. Both groups were told you're paid per image you search. So the idea there, more images I search, more money I make. One group was told that after you've completed your work, all of your findings will be discarded, thrown away. Nothing will be done with them. Another group, also looking through medical images, they were told that at the conclusion of your work will be scanning, your eyes will be scanning for precancerous cells. The second group took more time knowing the why. They took more time per image and even decreased their pay. They earned on average less than 10% than the first group. That is, knowing their why was even more important than getting paid more. There's just a value in knowing our purpose, and God wants you to know your purpose in life. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says, this is our purpose. The Word of God says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In nearly every area of life, we know, when we know our purpose, when we know our why, it just frees us up, it motivates us. Some of you remember a week ago, Rick Duncan and the Stolen Valor Act. Rick Duncan claimed to have a purple heart. Rick Duncan claimed to have a silver star. He claimed to be in the Pentagon on 9-11. Rick Duncan went so far as to claim that he was a captain in the United States Marine Corps and had attended the Naval Academy. But arrested in El Paso, Texas, they found out the FBI did that he wasn't even Rick Duncan. And he was later arrested under the Stolen Valor Act. The idea there that you cannot claim to have the Purple Heart and not really have it. And veterans deserve better. We all agree with that. Veterans deserve better than have someone like that. And if Jesus were able to speak today, he would say that I deserve better. When people who claim by the name of Jesus Christ and don't have the life of worthiness, Ephesians 4 verse 1. And so we don't want to be guilty of the Stolen Valor Act when it comes to Jesus Christ. And so here today, we're not here to try to deserve our place, to deserve God's favor. We could never do that. Never, ever, never, ever. How's that good for good grammar and good English? But we should recognize all the grace and favor. That's what we were singing a moment ago. And can it be 
that God would love me like this, incredible. So when we recognize his favor in us, how much he's invested in us, we go out and seek to live a life in consistency with that. How do we do that? How do we live a purposeful life of knowing our why? Look with me first in verse 1 of Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2. We're to clothe, we're to clothe yourself with humility. To clothe yourself with humility. Look again in verse 1. He says, I therefore prisoner, Paul writing from the prison cell there in Rome to the Ephesus church, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's the calling to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And how do I do that? With all humility. With all humility and gentleness, the Word of God says. If you're going to know your why as a believer in Jesus Christ, then you're going to walk with humility. Now, the word humility comes, of course, our English word humble. Humble and human come from the same Latin root word. I learned that new this week. Humble and human come from the same Latin root word. To think of that word human and humble, the same word, be down to earth with your feet planted in the ground. Now, I want to remind you, the Bible says we were made of average, ordinary dust as humans. We weren't made of gold dust or stardust or silver dust. We were made of just average, ordinary dust. That's what you were made of. I know you're incredible. I know you're important and powerful and all the following, but you and I were made of just ordinary dust. And the Bible says we should pursue humility because look at this, humility promotes unity. If you want to have unity in your church, and that's what Paul's writing about here, if you want to have unity in your family, in your workplace, then you need to have humility. Arrogance will create division. Arrogance creates bitterness. When you've got a whole bunch of people promoting themselves, then you will find there's great division there. And humility not only helps us with our why, it helps us bring one another together. And that's what I love about our church in so many ways. You're such a pleasure to pastor for these years, these past nine years. You're just a great unified people. Not only would Paul say about humility, but Peter, I love what Peter says here. He says these words, clothe yourselves, 1 Peter chapter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now that phrase, originally, I believe, if memory serves, appears in Proverbs. But the New Testament writers picks it up and repeats it in the book of James, in the book of 1 Peter as well. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So maybe you're feeling it today. Maybe you're feeling great and you want to take on God. You want to have God in one corner of the ring and you want to box him. Get after it, my friend. You know, I'm stupid, but I'm not that stupid. I don't need to take on God. I've already got a whole family and a church to take on. God help me. Humble yourselves, the Bible says, therefore under the mighty hand of God. And at the proper time, he will exalt you. Oh, that all of us would adopt humility, the Bible's calling on us. Humility is the purpose of life. It brings happiness as well. You and I think that purpose of life and that happiness is found in arrogance and conceit and pride and promoting ourselves. When Kim Kardashian can tweet a promotional product and make more money in one tweet than a public school teacher can make the whole year, we think that that is happiness, that happiness is found in fame and having a whole lot of followers. But happiness isn't found in making seven figures. Happiness is found in humility. Let me show you. Let me show you how this happens. The Baylor Bears this past 
was in March or April, won the NCAA championship. I was surprised that the Wildcats of Kentucky didn't win it either. I know that we're still in shock on this, but they discovered something, in fact, something really remarkable. The first time in the school's history, Baylor won the NCAA Men's National Championship, and according to the team, according to the coach, they found their inner power in joy. Joy. J-O-Y. Let me read the tweet that you see on the screen. Jared Butler, one of the players, said, quote, the culture of joy is Jesus, others, then yourself. So it's a hierarchy of the way of thinking. For me, it's also the fact I get to be here with this group of guys, he continues. It's a joy. It's fun. Joy. Jesus, others, yourself. Now, someone recently looked at that, and they said, oh, that's great. Where did they come up with that? Well, I, I learned that from some ladies that I pastored decades ago. This is an old thing that's gone around Baptist churches for maybe a century or more. J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. The problem is most of us try to live myself, maybe you, and if I get around to it, God. And then we wonder why we're not happy. You're not gonna be happy when you don't pursue humility. You're arrogant, conceited, hubris. You think of yourself more. The Bible says here in Ephesians 4, verse 2, with all humility. Now, again, happiness is hard to find, sustained, long-term happiness. It's because humility is hard. And one of the real problems of humility is it's difficult to know when you're both prideful and when you're humble. It's really difficult to examine yourself. You have to distrust yourself when it comes to the aspect, am I prideful, am I arrogant? Because pride will bury itself. It will keep itself from appearing in a mirror and in a self-inventory test. I like what one author said, that pride acts and works like carbon monoxide. What's carbon monoxide do if you were in a sustained place, a controlled place that's all locked up. It's odorless, right? You can't detect it, and yet it does what? Say it with me, what does it do? It'll kill you. That's what pride is. Pride is odorless, it's so difficult to track. But when you are inebriated with yourself, it will kill you, it will destroy you, and you won't even know it. And again, pride hides itself, like carbon monoxide, it hides itself. And again, it's so challenging to see. So having just told myself, told you, it is so difficult to trust myself when it comes to evaluating us. How about we do this? How about we evaluate ourselves? On a one to 10 scale, how self-centered are you? How self-centered are you? Now, I double dog dare you to take that and hand it to your spouse probably want to go separate ways this afternoon after you, you do this. You might want to just eat in separate corners and go ahead and get a hotel for this upcoming week, right? Or if you're single, ask a good friend that really knows you. So I really want to hear some feedback. How self-centered am I? Well, let me give you some clues. I've shared with these before. Group picture. Group picture. Who's the first person you look for in the group picture? How are we doing so far? <laughs> you immediately look for you, don't you? Right? What'd you do with your yearbook in high school? I know what I did. I went to the back. I looked at the index and I flipped through every page to see if they'd accurately got me 
in every page. And I couldn't understand why they wouldn't put me in every page. You need to be distrustful, distrustful of evaluating yourself because pride, again, acts and works like carbon monoxide. How do I know if I'm a self-centered person? Well, do you need to be honored? Do you need to be honored a lot? Do you need people to promote yourself? You say, well, not much, Pastor. Well, how about this? Are you devastated by other people's criticisms of you? If they criticize your work, if they criticize your looks, if they criticize your hobby, your garden, your house, are you devastated by that type of thing? If you're an artist and they criticize your song that you're performing or your poem, we're, we're really oftentimes people of conceit, arrogance, and it hides itself in us. And again, go back to the text, Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, one more time, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. What's he saying there? Don't be Rick Duncan. Don't be guilty of the stolen valor act as a believer in Jesus Christ. This is your calling, and you've been to with all humility. Notice those words there. It's a little prefix in the word humility in the Greek. The word humility or humble there is a prefix. And you see the prefix come out in English with the word all. Your Bible's not saying live with a dose of humility. Be okay if you've got some pride, some conceit, some arrogance. Don't come around and say, well, you know, I've reduced it since the last time you talked about this, Pastor. You know, I was 84% prideful then. Now I'm around 83.7. I'm really in good shape, Pastor. No, the Bible's saying be completely free of conceit. Be completely free of hubris. Be completely free of pride. Because pride is injecting embalming fluid in your spirit. It'll kill you. I like what C.S. Lewis said in one of his works. He said, pride is a black hole and it acts and operates like an itch. You ever had an itch? What do you have to do? You gotta scratch it, right? When you have this itch for recognition, you'll not be happy, but you'll scratch it. You'll want others to honor you and speak of you and promote you. But there's such a pleasure, Lewis says, in forgetting about yourself. You want to be a great conversationalist? You want to be a great witness for Jesus Christ? Be a great listener. This past week, I was involved in a group of about 40 people where to introduce ourselves. It was interesting to time the introductions of some of those individuals, all their accolades, all their education. Was it said of Baptist preachers of yesteryear, yesteryear they could strut while sitting down? That's what it felt like. It took forever talking about one's credentials and all that goes on. Humility is a powerful thing. It can promote, promote unity and it can bring happiness. I want to just sort of round this up here as we talk about humility and how we can be honoring the Lord. But humility is a distinctive Christian trait. In the history of ideas, Christianity embraced humility, grabbed a hold of it with eagle's talons and wouldn't let go. The word in verse 2 for humility is to be of low-mindedness. To be of low-mindedness. In fact, outside of the New Testament, the Greek language in Greek thought, the Roman and Greek thought of the first century when your New Testament was being written, this trait was not only 
not embraced, it was to be shunned. They said that humility, the Romans did, in the Greek world, in the Roman world, was an attitude of slaves and not to be anywhere embraced. It wasn't to be found as a virtue, as a characteristic. And then this guy comes along and he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And he just happened to be the greatest man who ever walked on the face of the earth. And all of a sudden, Christians said, we can't follow the Romans. We can't follow the outside world. Yes, it was despised outside of the New Testament and of the Christian church, but it's uniquely embraced by those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do you get humility? How do you get humility? You, you get some humility when you recognize the bigness of God. I love to tell the story. Years ago, I was pastoring in the Panhandle, Texas, border, Texas, middle of nowhere, make a left, go 100 miles. Love the people of Borger, but we were there. And Tracy's grandfather, Otis Fallen, World War II vet, since passed away, great man, lived in western Kentucky most of his life. A hurricane had come to Houston. Now, you're Texans. You know your geography, right? We were where? Where does Tracy and I live at this time? The Panhandle. Where's the hurricane? Houston. He called and said, you guys okay? And I said, what, what do you mean? He said, you okay? And I felt, oh, he's talking about the hurricane. I said, Otis, that hurricane, from where I live to where it appears on the shore, is equally as far away from me as you are in western Kentucky. It would take me 12 hours to get to both places. See, the point of me telling you the story about humility, until you've driven Texas, you don't get how big Texas is. They would tell me stories out there that would nurse work from home. She said that the headquarters of this nursing operation was up in Connecticut, and she'd missed her badge. She said, well, just lay us in Connecticut. Just run over to San Antonio and get a new one. Run over to San Antonio and get a new one. Do you have any idea? It's not until you're in Texas do you understand the vastness of Texas. Tracy's grandfather couldn't pick up on that. You're not a humble person until you get in the vastness of the greatness of God, until you meet him and you see him. I remember the beginning of my doctoral days. I thought in my beginning of my doctoral days I knew something. I told somebody who was listening to me, I said, I'm an idiot. I didn't have a recognition until that day that I knew nothing, and I wondered if I really belonged with these individuals. See, friend, you're going to think you're somebody until you meet this great, big, holy God and understand this tremendous love that Jesus Christ gives when you and I don't deserve it. Abraham understood that, the father of the faith. Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. If you think you're gold dust, silver dust, you're but dust and ashes before him. And yet he lifts you up and exalts you and embraces you and loves you like you're somebody. It's an incredible thing, this thing to be a Christian. The Bible calls upon us, if we want to be know anything about happiness, if we want to know anything about unity, we're going to have to clothe ourselves with humility. Secondly, the Bible calls upon us right here in verse 2 to show love to one another. Actually, verse 3 and verse 2. With all humility, we're to, call, we're to walk worthy with Christ, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another with love. Bearing with one another in love. 
Again, we're trying to make our lives count. We're trying to seek the why in life. And it's difficult to overstate the importance of love and our need for love. Now, watch carefully. Love, when we think about it, is a roller coaster of emotions. We think about love, especially romantic love, the breakups, the togetherness, the country music of love, and all that type of stuff. It's a roller coaster. But 15 different words in your New Testament, 15 different words for the word love appear, and not one of them, not one of them is a feeling. 15 words in your New Testament appear for the word love, and not one of them describe a feeling. In fact, all of them are verbs. They're a verb. We've been given this idea that you can't love until you feel love. And the Bible says love is on the move. It's like a moving stream. It's always active. It's moving. And love is a powerful thing when it seeks to put its crosshairs on you and come. It's not a static thing. It's a stationary thing. No, we'll see a real love. Love is always on the move. Now, again, how do I become a loving person? I become a humble person when I meet and encounter God, not through a sermon, not through a lecture, not through some sort of book or somebody's secondhand experience, but when I have a real living encounter with the Holy God. And how do I know love? When I know love, when I meet love. Love is not a concept, it's a person. See, love came to a manger to rescue us from ourselves. Love came to a cross at Easter and first died, and then love rose on the third day from the grave. Love walked many miles in between Christmas and Easter. Love healed. Love gave sight to the blind. It cleansed lepers, love did. Love taught in parables. Love gave hearing to the deaf and fed the multitudes. And love continues to this day. Love pursues rebels and gives us grace. Friend, love isn't a concept. Love is a person. And love is spelled J-E-S-U-S. How do I know anything about love? It's because I'm loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Before love is an emotion or even a behavior, love is an experience as a Christian. If you think you're going to be loving, you say, okay, no words in the New Testament or anything but an action, so I'm just going to act love. You're not going to act love until you've met love, until you've been embraced by love, until you meet this incredible God who loves you. Because the love of the New Testament, the love of Jesus, does two things that are completely rare, but it's what you're always searching for. You want to be loved by at least someone, if not more. You want to be loved not for what you do or what you can give. You want to be loved for who you are. I don't want to be loved for what I do or what I can give you. I don't want to be a tool to you. I want you to love me. In fact, marital love is Adam and Eve. They're naked and not ashamed. Naked not just physically, but naked in every way. That's what real love is in a marriage. When you're completely vulnerable, you completely expose all your secrets, all your dirty laundry, and he loves you, she loves you, no matter all this. You want to be loved not for what you do and who you are, or what you do or what you can give, but who you are. The second thing, you want an enduring love, a permanent love, a love that doesn't move away. And both of these loves are met with this love of Jesus Christ gifts. And so when we meet love, and he loves us permanently. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I put my firm grip on you and no one can snatch you out of my hand. 
One of my son's great teachers years ago said to him, he said, but I think I can take myself out of the hand of God. Rock my son's world. I said, I'm not stronger than the hand of Jesus. I'm a great sinner, but he's a great savior. I may be I may not be the smartest tool, I may not be the sharpest crayon, but I don't think my grip is bigger than the grip of Jesus. He is a permanent love, and who can, look at this, who knows more about you than even you? Talk about knowing where the skeletons are buried. He knows it all about you, and yet he loves you with this. Now, self-absorbed people, conceited people, listen carefully. The Bible says that if you're going to try to come Combine love with conceit, love with pride, love with arrogance, love will run away from you. If you're going to try to, in your marriage, in your church, in your workplace, if you're going to combine love with pride, love with arrogance, love with conceit, love's going to run away from you. It's going to hide. Paul would write these words in Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or, what's that next word? boast. Love is not, you're not going to be a loving person when you're full of yourself. You've got to be empty of you. Again, the Greeks called this hubris because you had too high a view of yourself. You and I are self-absorbed people, and when we're self-absorbed, love runs from us. So why is love so hard? The Bible again here says we're to bear with one another in love. And times we can do that in verse 2. There are times in my marriage, there are times in the church, there are times at work I can bear with you. But there are times that you're just too much, right? Let's just be honest. And I'm too much. I've had enough of him. I've had no, I cannot take another minute. I've got to get out of here. So why is it so hard to bear with one another in love? Because the Bible says this. This is the diagnosis the Bible gives of us. We have not sinned. We don't have sin on us, we have sin in us. Most of us think that we've sinned a little bit and that sin's exterior. The issue is when you, when you do an autopsy and open up me, sin is inside me. I'm of the flesh, that's the words of Paul. And what is that? I, that my internal compass, like a compass is always pointing north, my internal compass always points toward who? Me. Always trying to support me. And the reason love is so difficult is that my compass is always pointing toward me. I'm a self-absorbed, conceited person. You might be saying, well, pastor, you need to meet Jesus. You need to get over this. Yeah, well, you're, you're as bad, if not worse, than I am. I appreciate your concern for me, but I'm here to talk about you. John Cusack, one of my favorite actors, did a uh, movie some years ago with Rob Reiner. You know him as Meathead. Four of you are paying attention. It was a Woody Allen movie, 1994, Bullets Over Broadway. Beginning of the movie, we meet the main character played by John Cusack. John Cusack's in a long-term relationship with his girlfriend, but the opportunity of a fair for Cusack's character comes along. And he asks his good friend, Rob Reiner, played by Rob Reiner in the movie, should he avail himself of the fair, even though he's in this long-term relationship, monogamous, not marriage, but girlfriend. And Rob Reiner says to him, guilt is passe. Don't worry about the guilt. Go pursue the affair. 
A few minutes later, after hearing this piece of advice from Rob Reiner's character, Cusack discovers that his own girlfriend is having an affair on him. And he is enraged. He is up in arms. He cannot believe that she's doing this. In the course of a heated conversation, Cusack's character asks his girlfriend, who are you having an affair with? With Rob Reiner. With Rob Reiner's character. See, I bring that up because we demand a love, an enduring love, an exposing love that we cannot give. We want a love from others that we don't want to give to them. How do I do that? It's when I meet love. Again, love is born in the manger. Love died on the cross. Love rose again on Easter Sunday. Love heals me. Love is Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Sin is not inside you in a few little places. Sin's all over the place. And we need to be baptized with the love of the cross of Jesus Christ. He will love you permanently. He will never let you go. Never, ever, ever, never. His grip on you. You're not strong enough to run from him. In fact, those who've met the Lord Jesus Christ will tell you that I ran from him for years and I found that he had ran faster than me. And when I got to the end of my rope, he was there meeting me and he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Not only will he love you permanently, he will love you and he knows all about you. He knows how conceited you are. He knows how sinful you are. He knows all that you're trying to hide. And yet his grace is incredible. If we want to be happy, if we want to be unified, we will be clothed with love and clothed with humility. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.